At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I remember sitting on the Big Lakes Toho or Kissimmee or Istapoga or Okeechobee and just seeing wave after wave of huge flights of ringnecks coming over. And it was not uncommon to get some break-offs from those and they would come spiraling down into your decoys and it was amazing. I, I can't remember the last time I saw that. You just don't see that anymore. And me, Travis, just a guy sitting here and anecdotally, I, I tend to lean that that's climate change stuff. Climate change. Those two words are becoming more present every day, even to those of us who prefer the peace and quiet of a morning on the water or the excitement of a bugle piercing crisp fall air. But we begin to notice that things are a bit off. When wildfires still rage during rifle season, or western rivers have permanent afternoon fishing closures every summer, or when more frequent and more powerful hurricanes continue to ravage waterfowl paradise in the southeast, Something just ain't right, and we know it. Our sporting traditions are threatened. Threatened in a way we can't ignore. Threatened in a way that could severely alter our way of life. So, shall we sit and watch our hunt slide away? Our family fishing trips deteriorate into a lesser version of the glory days? And our cherished Octobers and Novembers drift into something we can only reminisce about? That's really not an option. Our option is to get active. Use our knowledge and tell our stories. Tell the world that our sporting lives are worth saving and that there's plenty left worth fighting for. We start now. We start by telling our stories. This is Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. Florida, the Big Peninsula the southernmost landmass in the contiguous United States. Due to its size, mild climate, and abundant water, sporting opportunities abound. One can fish for bass and snook in the same day, or hunt for waterfowl, then do some crabbing. But just like the many other sporting havens we've detailed on vanishing seasons, Florida is changing, and in large part due to climate change. From warmer temperatures drying up springs and changing migration patterns, to invasive species proliferating and saltwater pushing into freshwater areas. The fish and wildlife that call Florida home are facing a new reality. The changes, coupled with rapid development, are pointing to bigger changes on the horizon for Florida's hunters and anglers. Travis Thompson is one such fella. Having lived his whole life in Florida, pursuing myriad fish and game, and being a hunting and fishing guide, he knows intimately what's at stake. 
So let's just start out with where you grew up. You know, what's your story down there in Florida? Yeah, I am, uh, I'm 44 years old. I'm a fifth generation Floridian. So my family has been in the state since 1870. And uh, we've been in the town that I'm in right now, uh, Winter Haven, Florida. We've been in that town since 1892. And the town was incorporated, I think, in 1890. So we've been here basically as long as the town has. Nice. And and talk about your hunting and fishing history. Has it been a family thing, a generational thing? Is it something that you got into? Just walk us through that. Yeah, I got into hunting and fishing. I got it uh, both barrels, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, my, my, my paternal grandfather was a, was a food on the table hunter. Didn't matter what it was or fisherman. If, if you could go hunt and keep it and, and, and put something in the pot, he did it. Deer, turkey, squirrels, hogs, rabbits, ducks, the whole nine yards fish. We fished in the Creek. If, if the, if the specs, we, we call crappie down here in Florida, we call them specs. If the specs were biting, we were going to catch specs. If the catfish were running, we were going to catch catfish. If the snook were on, on the beach, we were going to catch snook. Like didn't matter. And then my, my mom's dad, my, my maternal grand grandfather, he, uh, he was a huge upland hunter. So he did some other hunting, but he was really into kind of more of the, and he didn't, he didn't come from any kind of affluence or anything. He just grew up quail hunting. And so between those two and he, and he also loved to fish. Uh, he, he bass fished all in his last 10 years. I bet he bass fished 300 days a year. So between those two, I just got it honest. My mom grew up around the outdoors. My, my dad obviously was eat up with it growing up in that family. And so there wasn't really, um, a choice. I, I call it kind of being a cradle conservationist. The other, the other kind of interesting thing is my dad is a, is an, uh, environmental engineer. And so he, he worked for the state department of environmental protection for 45 years and just kind of naturally being around him. Like you never cut corners on regulations. You, you never, you never did anything that might in, in jeopardize him losing his job but he also cared greatly about the resource and always felt like he was doing something bigger than himself. So as far as being a hunter and fisherman, I grew up getting it both sides, doing it all, doing it year round. Um, in the winter, we I'd go to my, my uncle's farm and prowl around chasing squirrels and rabbits and deer and whatever. And in the summer, I would spend the entire summer uh, in Southwest Florida, uh, Boca Grande area, chasing whatever fish I could, I could get to bite. And just, I, I grew up, it was always some kind of season, Florida, Florida nowadays, uh, people joke about it, but I think there's nine months a year or 10 months a year. You can hunt something from, from deer at the end of July through alligator season, through, uh, waterfowl and general hunting and everything else. It's like eight or nine months a year. You can hunt something. So, and then we got fishing obviously year round down here. So it was a thing that was really easy to get into, really easy to kind of fall into and something I just people ask you all the time, like, do you remember your first fish or your first deer, your first turkey or whatever? I don't really. Cause I just kind of grew up doing it. And I, I remember I have some cool memories of that stuff, but I, I don't really remember any of the specifics cause I just don't know any different. I was, I was out traipsing around chasing stuff from the time I could move. <laughs> That's excellent. So now what do you do the most in the field? What do you hunt for? What do you fish for? Yeah. It's, it's funny as an adult, I've kind of, I'll say I've matured as a, as an outdoorsman, as a sportsman, I used to fish way more than anything else inshore saltwater fishing. So it's chasing your snook, your trout, your redfish and, and 
the big one for us is tarpon. Uh, over time though, I really got heavily into waterfowl and nowadays I'm Florida's only full-time waterfowl guide. And what I mean by that is I guide saltwater fishing. I, I, I have my podcast. I, I have other stuff that I, that I chase revenue streams on, but the end of the day from, from September through the end of January, the only thing I'm doing is figuring out where ducks are going to land, looking at duck habitat. And that's kind of morphed into a thing that now is, I, 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 I do some projects where we're putting out wood duck nest boxes and then we go and do banding projects with the state. And so ducks have really become my thing that I'm, I'll say known for. I don't know that I'm known for it, but I, it's kind of the thing that people know me to do is uh, I'm just addicted to waterfowl and there's no way, shape or form, um, that I could, if you, if you said tomorrow, you can go catch a snook or you can go shoot a duck. I'm going to shoot a duck 10 out of 10 times. And I love catching snook, but ducks, ducks are my addiction. Florida's ecosystems that fish and game rely on are experiencing big changes. Many not obvious at first glance, but when one takes a deeper look, we find things like declining water flows due to warmer temperatures habitat being degraded due to more extreme events, and later migrations, or in some cases, waterfowl species not coming so far south any longer. These all diminish sporting opportunities. Storms are becoming more severe, like hurricanes and torrential downpours. Since 1958, heavy downpours have delivered 27% more rain in the southeastern U.S. than they did back then which delivers more water than many systems can handle without damage. And in a paradox that only climate change seems to deliver, heat waves and drought are also increasing. These factors are hard to adapt to for fish and wildlife and create strange occurrences for hunters and anglers like Travis. Let's jump into climate a little. When I say the words climate change to you, what does that mean as a Florida sportsman? (laughs) It's funny because when you say the words climate change, the hair on the back of my neck stands up and and a little bit because I'm in the deep South and it's, it's almost become crazily enough, a a politicized issue. Like, like you almost have to choose a side on it. And I think that's crazy because as a, as a guy that's outdoor a lot and I, I, I run with a crowd of people that are outdoor a lot, outdoors a lot. It's hard to deny some of the things you see on the landscape. Uh, just on a on a regular basis, and and I know we'll get into some of those as as we talk through it. But just things like fish behaviors, be it fish ranges or their spawning behaviors, or just any number of things, we've seen a shift in those waterfowl behaviors, nesting wading bird behaviors, deer deer patterns, turkeys, like. Across the board, as a sportsman, as someone that spends 200 days a year, 300 days, 250 days a year on a boat or in the woods, it's hard to deny that there has been a shift in the patterns of the wildlife that we see. And so I'm not a trained scientist. I'm not, I'm not a guy that, that is going to sit down and pour over, you know, reports and everything else about what is climate change, what isn't climate change. But I do believe there has to be something to this just based anecdotally on the stuff that we see every day when we're out in the woods and the waters. With abundant salt and freshwater species, Florida is an angler's paradise. 
But with climate change comes many changes for fisheries, and the numerous impacts are becoming more evident by the day across Florida. Scientists have started cataloging the changes and beginning to model what they expect will happen in the future. Most of what we know and what is predicted is not pretty. For saltwater fish, they'll have to contend with acidification and changes in water chemistry, along with habitat loss due to coastal erosion. And for freshwater species, they are dealing with warmer water, altered spawning cycles, and increased hydrological variables. And both will have to contend with more invasive species. These factors also have the potential to alter food sources and migration patterns. Travis Thompson is experiencing many of these changes firsthand. Why don't you outline a little for me what you're seeing? Let's start with fish. What you're seeing with fish ranges, patterns, spawning. There's there's both saltwater and freshwater that you have there, so I'm I'm sure there's a lot, but maybe some of the most poignant things you you know of. It's bizarre. And and I love Florida so much. Obviously, I'm from here. I've got strong roots here. I will say this, growing up, my family didn't go other places on vacation. We didn't go to North Carolina. We didn't go to Texas. We didn't go to Montana. We went to the coast or we went to the camp. Like we, we did our entire lives in Florida and I still kind of behave that way. And so when you ask what we see, it's, I'm 44 years old. And for all 44 of those years, I've spent my summers on the Southwest Florida coast and used to it felt like there was a line around the West central area of Florida, maybe Hernando County, Citrus County, where Snook didn't go past that line. And Snook, if you're not familiar with them, fantastic game fish. Think of a, think of a bass in saltwater. They love structure. They get big. They get probably 35, 40 pounds. I think the state record's 50 something really cool fish, but they behave like a bass. They'll hit top water plugs. They'll hit bait. They, they like to be around docks or mangrove roots or whatever. And just one of them, they're probably my favorite saltwater fish. And over time, we have seen those fish not get knocked back. Used to, we would have enough cold snaps or freezes or whatever that you would see the fish, they would stay around that line. Obviously, you'd see it slip back and forth from year to year or over a three-year to five-year period. But now we're seeing snook all the way up into Jacksonville consistently. Like there's a fishery around Amelia Island, which is on the Georgia line where people can go and catch snook uh, consistently. Guys kind of locally there know about it. That's something that was unheard of to us growing up. Like to catch snook, you went to the south of Florida. Um, that's that's a saltwater That's a saltwater fish. Funny enough, you go to the freshwater fish, and depending on the time of year, shell crackers are a big fish for us. Bluegill are a big fish for us. Your channel cats we've actually seen shifts in those fish when they spawn and where they spawn by months, you know, used to, you would only see them spawning in certain times of the year. And now we've seen a shift earlier two months into the, the, the cooler times. That's, that's a little bit of a bizarre behavior because you're sitting out there and you're catching fish on beds when you wouldn't see them on beds. And then we've also seen them kind of st- get into a longer spawn, which is strange. Florida has always been a waterfowler's haven. More than 20 species of waterfowl spend at least parts of their lives in Florida, and with them comes abundant hunting opportunities. 
The Gulf Coast provides habitat for nearly a quarter of all North American waterfowl during wintering and migration seasons. But as you might have guessed by now, climate change is affecting them too. Decreasing wetlands and lower stream flows caused by warmer temperatures and coastal degradation are reducing the available habitat for waterfowl, all while these same factors often diminish common food sources such as fish and aquatic vegetation. These alterations have contributed to changes in what types of species can be found and thus hunted across Florida. What will these changes spell for waterfowl hunters and guides across the region? Ducks. <laughs> Ducks are probably the biggest one for me, and that's why I saved it for the last. As a kid, and I say as a kid, as a, I didn't become a serious waterfowler until I was in my late teens, early 20s. You know, I, I did some of it before that, but I was not hooked on it. Um, black belly whistling ducks were almost non-existent. Like you, you saw them occasionally, but they were really kind of a, an aberration somewhere, somehow our state has filled up with those. And I know that other States have and talking to duck, duck hunters and, and waterfowlers across the, the South and even into the Midwest. Now there's a nesting population up in Illinois. They're in Oklahoma, Northwest Oklahoma. There's black belly whistling ducks. Almost every state between here and there has had some congregation of them show up. And it doesn't make sense to me that they just one day decided, hey, the weather's stagnant and we're gonna we're gonna migrate our range or or nomadically move our range. There there has to be something to some change that has led them to Florida and to exist in the numbers they are now. That's a great answer. I I, I like hearing the story. It's it's a bad outcome, but I I do appreciate the story. Let me give you another answer to that too, and you can do it if you want. Something we've seen with waterfowl too is uh, shifts in migration. And I'm sure anyone you talk to in the waterfowl community about climate change is going to talk about migration shifts, uh, be it Atlantic flyaway birds moving west. Is there a polar shift happening? Like, like what is this? And again, not not a biologist, but it's, it's really... Uh, a unique situation when you look at Florida because we're such a long peninsula that comes down and formerly we, we actually get birds from the Mississippi flyway and the Atlantic flyway. So the Mississippi's come down to the Gulf and split both ways and a lot go to Texas and some come to Florida and then uh, birds on the Atlantic flyway stay on the Atlantic flyway. But we have seen a shift. Even if you went back and looked at our harvest data, um, 25, 30 years ago, it was all ringers. Like that's, that was the duck you killed but we had a much higher variety with pintails and widgeon and blue wing teal have always been big in Florida. Over the years, we've seen a shift in which ducks get harvested in Florida, which I think is indicative of that migration shift. And it's also, I think, indicative of what I talked about with black belly whistling ducks, those kind of out competing some, some native or uh, because they're not invasive, they're, they're nomadic. Uh, out competing some of those guys for resources. Anyway, I just feel like as you look at the winners, we don't see the flights of birds. I can remember sitting there and everything's always kind of almost like a childhood amnesia thing. You remember deer being bigger, ducks being more or whatever, but I can remember sitting on the big lakes, Toho or Kissimmee or Istapoga or Okeechobee and just seeing wave after wave of huge flights of ringnecks coming over. And it was not uncommon to get some breakoffs from those and they would come spiraling down into your decoys and it was amazing. I, I can't remember the last time I saw that. You just don't see that anymore. And 
me, Travis, just a guy sitting here and anecdotally, I, I tend to lean that that's climate change stuff. We're seeing a shift in the migration. We're seeing a shift in the behavior of those birds. They're not coming as far south. They're moving west. They're stopping on food sources, other places. They're not getting frozen up where they're having to move. I just think that's a change that we're seeing from the waterfowl perspective. That's man, I, I really hope there's something that's able to be done to write that because I want my kids to be able to see and my grandkids to be able to see just those huge grand passages of birds coming into the state that uh, were not at all uncommon, but we kind of took them for granted because we don't see them anymore. Hunting and fishing are big business in Florida. These activities generate more than $10 billion annually for the state and help guys like Travis make a living guiding folks attracted to Florida's amazing fish and wildlife resources. Clients have come to expect outstanding days afield, but the ability to make that happen is getting a bit more difficult, and guides have had to shift what they consider a successful trip. Changing hunts, different species, different habitat, later migrations, these are just a few of the things that are changing the way guides do business. You're a guide, and, and you're seeing some of these changes. So what are those changes, in a, and how are they affecting your ability to make a living, to you know entertain your clients and get them out there on the water? One of the things that I've seen a lot is we've had to shift our – we've had to be more adaptable to the species that we chase. And I'll, I'll be very candid with you. Duck hunting to me is very traditional. I want to put decoys out. I want to have a duck call. I want ducks to cup into those decoys. A shoot them on the, on the descent and it'd be really classic. That's what I think every duck hunter wants. I don't, I don't, I'm not really looking for pass shooting. I'm not really looking for, I'm really passionate about doing it the right way and seeing the thing happen. And over time, as we've seen more and more black bellies on the landscape and less and less other ducks on the landscape, something we've had to do is become very adaptable to what we're chasing on any given day. And I'll be very honest with you. I don't really like to hunt black belly whistling ducks. They don't behave like a regular duck. So we don't get them to decoy the same way. We don't, they'll respond to a whistle a little bit, but it's really kind of like shooting at a slow chicken that's flying around you. And it's not as sporting. It's not as, it's not their dog. It like, they're very good to eat. They're very tasty, but it's not the same as model ducks dumping into your spread or woody's coming out of the woods or widgeon or pintails buzzing by you or anything else. Like, so I've seen, I've seen guides as a whole begin to, kind of have to adapt to when they're chasing what they're chasing. And I've also seen us adapt to, uh, on the, on the fishing side to when our seasons are used to, you could run tarpon for a longer period of time and you could start at the bottom of the state and work your way all the way up, or you could start at the home assassin and work your way all the way down. And, uh, as, as we've seen kind of some shifts in those fish behaviors, we've started to see guides have to sit down and focus in one place and, this is just my perception, but it feels like the overall success rate is lower, even though we still have a lot of good days. So it's not don't come because the fishing's bad. The fishing's great. But I think there's been a, if you, if you look at the, the graph of how it used to happen, I think you'd see the slow increase and the slow decrease. I think now it's more of a up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And I think that consistency is due in part to things we're seeing like, like effects of, of, uh, climate change.
Solving the complicated problems that arise from climate change takes direct engagement. Engagement the sporting community has not always been good at, or willing to do at all. But we are also the canaries in the coal mine. If the species we pursue are dwindling, and our opportunities are changing due to climate change, then it's incumbent upon us to be the tip of the spear for the solutions and the conversations that will address it. This won't happen by sitting in our silos, enjoying what we have now and trying to forget about the future. We owe it to our kids, to the moment that a person first hooks a fish or harvests meat for their family. Those moments are too precious to simply let them slip away. We need to be asking ourselves how we can be part of the solution. I think we've got to be better at critically thinking about these problems. No, no matter what it is, it, it can be climate change, it can be conservation as a whole, it can be nutrient loading, it can be something really specific to your to your your deer population and your area. But we've got to be willing to listen to experts, and that doesn't mean we have to just take it at its at at, at their word. It's okay to question it. It's okay to it's okay to have a conversation, but it needs to be a conversation, not a debate. And I feel like we we live in a day and age where we read the headlines and not the story. And we have to do better at engaging and educating and becoming an informed constituency of sportsmen, of conservationists, of, of sportswomen ac- across the board in taking the lead on this versus sitting back and saying, oh, our government's going to fix this. Or the, And that's not a dig of the government. Any, we tend to sit back and say, oh, someone else will take care of that. I mean, we, I feel like from a macro level, that's what we've got to do. We've got to figure out how to engage. We've got to show up at our, at our commission meetings, be it our, for, for us in Florida, it's our County commission. It's our water management district. It's our army Corps. It's our, it's our FWC commission. And we've got to voice our concerns in a respectful way. So you look up in 20 years and things turned out the way you hoped. What would that look like? What's your hope for the future? We're going to be successful in 20 years. If Florida is going to be a good state, uh, and I love to say good states are hard to find and, and have a picture of Florida in it. I think we have to do a better job of developing an informed constituency and, and creating an army of conservationists. And that doesn't mean, you know, name your name, your concert, Teddy Roosevelt or, or Aldo Leopold or those guys. It doesn't mean we have to create an army of those, but we have to create an army of people that care, but they care in the right way and for the right reasons about the right things. Uh, they're informed and understand that conservation means seeking the proper use of the resource versus preservation, seeking, seeking to keep it from being used. Um, we get a lot of back and forth and we spend a lot of energy in our state fighting. I'll, I'll say the environmentalists from the hunting community or the environmentalists and the conservationists. And if we could get together and find some common ground on some of that stuff, man, it would, it would help us move mountains because then we could, have a, a faction that's able to understand these things at a, at a bigger level and take them to our leadership. We love to sit around and blame our politicians. And, and it's always one side or the other, you know, we want to blame the Democrats. We want to blame the Republicans. We want to blame the Democrats. We want to blame the Republicans. And it's not really a fair way to look at it. What we need to do is figure out a way as stakeholders, as citizens to band together and find these common interests and no matter who's in office, get them to carry out our wishes and, and, and manage our resources and save our state in a, in a healthy, sustainable, 
conservation minded way. So if in 20 years, Florida looks the way I want it to, it means we've done an effective job of communicating that to our elected officials and they've carried out the will of the people. Go fight for the swamps and backwaters of Florida, for the high country of the West. Go defend the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. Go to work for the salmon of the Northwest and the waterfowl in Alaska's tundra. All of these places and species we know and love are threatened by climate change. Ask yourself today what you will do to ensure they remain healthy, productive, and ready to support the next generation's sporting pursuits. Denying that for them would be nothing short of tragedy. Figure out how you can help and then set out tomorrow to get moving. Our sporting lives depend on it. This is Aaron Kindle, and this has been Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. Original music written and performed by Keenan Koppel. Audio production by Mandela Van Eden. Writing by Aaron Kindle. And a huge thanks to Travis Thompson for his time and all he does for Florida's fish and wildlife. For more information, visit nwf.org backslash Game Changer. This has been a production of NWF Outdoors. <laughs>